Hey, I'm Isadora, and this is Legendary. Hi, I'm uh, co-host Adam. And we are here to talk to you a little bit about some of our favorite legends, tell you the story behind the legend and how they came to be. Yeah, this is sort of, um, I don't know. Episode number one. This is, this, is go this is going to be episode number one, a bit of a test base for yeah. how we're going to be doing this. We have our podcast juice. We do have our podcast juice. Um, it is quarantine day 236, so the, the acceptable times to be having podcast juice is becoming earlier and earlier. Especially when you're in the UK and you're drinking gin and tonic. <laughs> mm. It's a national requirement over here. It's like drinking tea. So, a little bit about our background. We host another podcast called History Through a House. Mm -hmm. Well, you host it. I host another podcast called History <laughs> Through a House, where Adam helps with my husband, and they interject helpful comments about things they know nothing about. <laughs> One of the things that we are all very interested in are legends. Yes, And definitely. supernatural. Yeah, that's definitely a newer thing for me. I, even doing the research for this episode, even though it's, we'll get into it a little bit later, um, I knew nothing about this this urban legend, and it's from the state that I was born in. So this is, you and Ben introduced me to the supernatural through the show Supernatural, ironically, <laughs> and by just owning old houses, I think. So it's definitely become something that we're both interested in. Uh, we like doing the research, Ben doesn't, so no. he'll drop in and learn stuff when he feels like it, <laughs> yeah. but he doesn't want to contribute because it's just a lot of homework. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, Maybe this is, it's not really important, but I don't put a lot of stock in a lot of these stories. I think they're more fun to look into and explore why why they would become popular stories instead of actually thinking this is, a, like, these are things that exist. Yeah, and we are going to try and, I guess, slightly theme each show, although we're not sure how it's going to work. No. But today we went with the idea of take something from your hometown yeah, as yeah. near as possible. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And look at one of the legends mm -hmm. associated with that. Some of the things I want to talk about are kind of, I guess, the more girly aspects of it. <laughs> Fairies and unicorns mm, and... I think it like romantic werewolf encounters. Oh, and oh yeah, we could do romantic <laughs> werewolf encounters. But I think I'm also, I mean, one of the ones that I think would probably require both of us to talk about, because you can see it so clearly developing, is things like The Legend of Slenderman. Oh yeah, those are fun. So it's kind of going go across the whole gamut. And we hope you enjoy what we have to say. Yeah. And as always, if you do, subscribe, review. Mm -hmm. And go check out the other one. And find us online. Yeah, and check out what else we're doing. All right. All right. Do you want to start? No, you're going to start. Okay, I'm going to start. Okay, so our theme for this episode is uh, we wanted to find urban legends that were closely associated to the areas where we grew up. That neither of us had ever heard. The other person had never heard of. Heard of. Well, I had never heard of these. Um, so I grew up in Ohio. It's a state in the heartland of the United States, very decidedly Midwestern. They grow lots of corn, lots of soybeans. And until recently, I, this was all stuff I learned during my, my research, uh, Ohio is in the top five of states with the most Sasquatch sightings. Okay. Which is, it just, there's a lot more supernaturally type stuff going on in that state than I realized. So of the people I know from Ohio, that totally surprises me because the only people I know from Ohio are, well, Adam's my cousin. Yeah. So it's my husband and all his family. Yeah. They don't strike me as Sasquatch believers. No, but so Ben grew up in New Jersey and they have the Jersey Devil. Yeah. But I'm sure he doesn't believe in that either. Um, may probably. He believes in everything. <laughs> so that's interesting because I don't have any friends who ever claim to see Sasquatch sightings. So I'm not sure what part of the state he's supposed to be well, seen in. Well, maybe that's for later. Yeah, maybe. Um, we also have something called the Grass Man and that's a bit weird. Some people lay claim that Mothman is actually from Ohio okay. because it's so cl close to Point Pleasant. 
in West Virginia. Okay. I'm sure there's a lot of contention about that on the internet. Didn't really get into it. Um, in Ohio, I'm actually quite interested in Mothman, so maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do a trip to Point Pleasant once this quarantine's all over. Sure, that's what I meant. Um, and there's a myriad of haunted buildings. So I grew up in a city, a, su- a suburb of Columbus, the state's capital, and it's the most haunted prison in the country. It's where they filmed Shawshank Redemption. Now that sounds more interesting yeah. to go to than Point Pleasant. Yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. It's super, super creepy. And then when I went to university, like the second most haunted building in the state was in that city. It's a haunted hospital. Did you have any university things that made you go there and do? Mm, I I don't know if I should say because the building's technically off limits. All of my American knowledge of universities comes from TV. Yeah, so I feel like okay. that would involve. Um, so I did work. It was a big complex, and I worked on the complex where the hospital was, and like a disused part of the hospital. I it was like where the recycling collection center okay. was. So I did work there, and occasionally it you know jobs would require us to go into other parts sure. of the hospital. Maybe we just had the keys and wanted to do some exploring. But I have been in. It is super creepy. Maybe we'll go into some of those stories because yeah. the ridges, is, it's what we call the that complex, is a terrifying bit of, cool. of like pre-medical history stuff. But that's not what we're talking about. So I chose a cryptid, which was a word that I didn't know until I was doing this research again. A cryptid is an animal whose existence or survival is unsubstantiated. Bigfoot, Yeti, Mothman, all that stuff. My research uh, delved a little bit into what are called melon heads. This is a strange one uh, because, again, I never heard of these. There's variations of the folklore stemming into states like Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, and Connecticut. These four states all have their own well, what are the melon heads? How did they come to be sort of thing? But Ohio has a very sort of unique, from what I could tell, idea about where these came from. Melon heads, uh, by, from the definition I could find, are small humanoids with bulbous heads, glowing red eyes, razor sharp teeth that occasionally emerge from the woods to attack people or eat babies. So, so they don't actually have a melon head? No. So that's what I thought was a bit weird too. Okay. Um, no, it it is like a deformity. Okay. Um, there is a reason why people think that might be, there's a reason why they're depicted as this in, in okay. folklore, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So in Ohio, Melonhead, the Melonhead story is centered mostly in the north, uh, in a city called Cleveland, specifically a suburb called Kirtland. The story goes that there was a doctor, um, and he's got two sort of origin stories, so I might dig into those a little bit. His name was Dr. Crow, which, very spooky name, mm-hmm. obviously that's how you start all folklore. And they were orphans. These these melon heads were orphans. Okay. The legend that I dug into originally claimed that Dr. Crow was a mad scientist who either adopted children or kidnapped children from somewhere and kept them in his home and, his, and was, yeah, doing sort of really horrible, perverse experiments on them okay. and injecting fluid into their brains, causing their heads to swell. Okay. So, like, really horrible guy. So he would continue to do these experiments, and some of the experiments included lobotomies, so the okay. children were generally very docile and sort of, yeah, like, not unaware of what was happening to them, but unaware to, to do anything okay. to, to stand up for themselves. These experiments would eventually leave the children docile and helpless, but having these horrible disfigurements. As his experiments continued, he would also become more insane, uh, you know. Mad scientist. Yeah, just, just a creepy, horrible mad, mad scientist. scientist. And then that insanity would affect his victims. They would they would start to they became angry. Okay. Um they they weren't nearly as docile 
not still not super, you know, able to control themselves. His lobotomy stopped being so effective. Yeah, I guess so. That's yeah. what this 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 legend has a lot of holes in it, which we'll get into. <laughs> it is just like a creepy Ohio cornfield okay. story. They're like, and then the, it claims that one night in a fit of rage, the Melonheads killed Doctor Crow and burnt burnt his home to the ground. Nice. There is apparently a uh, a road you can follow to a trail that dead ends in a trail, and you can walk into the woods. And there is evidence that a a home burnt down there, and that's sort of like the. If you're a teenager and you've got nothing better to do on the weekends because you live in the Midwest, you and your friends drive out and then you dare each other to walk out into this field to see, see okay. if you can see a melon head. So they burn his house down. What period of history are we talking that Dr. Crow? There's okay. not really any. Okay. I'm, it's probably the early 1900s, I'm guessing. Okay. I couldn't find it a nailed down year, okay. but it didn't seem any earlier than like the early 1900s. Okay. So they burn his house down and they flee into the woods. And basically what happens there is... They are unable to communicate with anyone in the outside world, so they just live in in like small communes and they interbreed. Okay. And the show, the offspring are horribly disfigured, even more feral, and they just sort of live in the woods. And the evidence to suggest that these creatures exist is people lose their livestock, pets go missing, occasionally children go missing. Obviously, I'm I'm sure that in this part of Ohio, there are just some natural predators that yeah. steal, you know, foxes kill chickens or whatever, and you know, it just gets attributed to an, an urban legend cuz that's a lot more fun, really. So they're actually humans. Yes, they're 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 human children that And even now they're interbreeded down, they're still humans. Yeah, but they're okay. they're they're the legends that I've, I've people who claim to have seen them say they're between four and six feet tall, so like the average height of, of like human. of a human. They have big heads, glowing red eyes. Um, they can run supernaturally. They can run very quickly. Oh, okay. There was one uh, account that claimed that she was driving down a country road with some of her friends, and they looked out the window of their car. I laughed out loud while I was reading this story, and they claimed to have seen one of these melon heads wearing just normal human clothes. Um, but keeping up with a car that was going like 50 miles an hour. Okay. So, yeah. They are just creepy things. Like, the stories sort of vary between that and that. So, yeah, so they flee to the woods, they interbreed, and the children are feral um, and disfigured. And they just kind of hide in the woods. And that's sort of, I think this is just a thing that in com communities like this, it's just like a boogeyman. Like, stories aren't super specific. You, you know, you might see one if you go out in the woods. Did you get into how any of the other states around them, are they all similar? Um, so I think it was either Michigan or Connecticut thought that the children were government experiments. Okay. And that the government had done all of these experiments previously and that he had, and that's, the story kind of doesn't make a lot of sense because he somehow acquires them from the government. Okay. He's, he's a, he's had his license revoked in this legend. He's not a practicing doctor, okay. but he knows enough about the brain and, and the surgery to perform the, the experiments. But I think that once again, the government store is just a way to get the children. What's in, what I found yeah. to be interesting was that there is a second like okay. story. And the second story is that Dr. Crow and his wife are actually two very caring people. Okay. And what they're actually doing is they're adopting children who are suffering from a condition called hydrocephalus. Okay. And that's liquid on the brain. That's literally what it means. Okay. And it does cause the the top part of the head to sort of balloon and become okay. bigger. Um and they, you know, they they kept adopting these children because they had nowhere else to go mm -hmm. and they cared for them and his wife would care for them like they were her children. Okay. Um, 
and the word melonhead it was actually a derogatory term used by people in the village. in the village who saw these children and didn't understand what they were seeing. Okay. And were and were calling the children melonheads. Okay. And she found that it was really hurting her children's feelings and so she drew them in very yeah. very closely and then eventually she and her husband died of natural causes and the children with no parental with nothing they they yeah. lose the only two people who care for them panic burn the house down and they all die inside the house oh okay. so the the second i really like the second like sort of bit of this folklore because it implies that the melon heads that are seen are actually ghosts of okay. the children and they haunt the the woods in the area of that makes of where the house is makes sense and it makes i like <laughs> it because it 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 because like the mad scientist thing is just, I it, I find it to be a little bit tired. Yeah. And when you have a sort of redeemable, pitiable character like a doctor and his wife who are taking in yeah. like pitiful children, that's like that's like that's kind of devastating in a way. I felt a lot more reading that than reading the horrible kidnappy doctor yeah. who did the stuff. But I assume there's like no historical evidence. No. Either. No. So there's a. Uh, a graveyard nearby where the house would have been. There's no marker for anyone with the name Crow spelled in any of the variations that they had it. Yeah. Um, there's a Dr. Crower, but there's no evidence that he adopted any children, that any children went missing in the area, or that even children children in Kirtland, there were no documented cases of children being born with hydrocephalus. Okay. So there's no, there's no basis anywhere. So I'm... The fact that this folklore exists is a little confusing okay. because there's no, but that's how folklore happens, right? Yeah. I mean, like one person. I mean, I'm sees, sure we're gonna come across this over and over again. Probably, yeah, yeah. So someone, one person saw one thing, and that's where the story came from. It's posited that it was actually one child who had it, probably not documented because those things probably weren't yeah. documented whenever the child was born, and that maybe someone just saw them driving past or walking yeah. past, saw it in a field, and freaked out because. They didn't understand what they were seeing. Yeah. I yeah. That would be normal. Yeah. It was 1800s, 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting thing about this story is that if you do follow the sort of melon heads were on, that they were just children who were yeah. being taken care of by caregivers and then horribly and yeah. mis- like burned their house down. There's a, a common phenomenon in Ohio. It's in several states across the country, okay. but they're called crybaby bridges. Okay. Which is a terrifying name. Yeah. Um, and the sort of urban legend is that you drive or walk out to a crybaby bridge, and if you wait for long enough, you can hear babies crying or screaming. And so, uh, there's a bridge that crosses the road going okay. to the trail where the burnt down house is. Yeah. And you can apparently hear screaming there. So that's another. That's people horrifying. use that. Yeah. People use that to support the melonhead theory that they're haunting, haunting that bridge, trying to find their mother or something. It's quite sad. It's quite yeah. sad. That's quite a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, so I do I do like parts of this story. Like I said earlier, the the mad scientist trope is a little bit tired for me. But it but the story is sort of like equal parts creepy and sort of like emotionally devastating because you are just looking at what could have been a house full of children who couldn't who were unable to take care of themselves who would end up unintentionally burning their house down after the tragic loss of their parents. That's really sad. It is really sad. So I, I, and I sort of like that from the ghost aspect too, because they would be wandering this. I wonder if it was, I mean, all those states at that point probably had newspapers and stuff. So it could have been a story that was in any one of the states that got. Yeah. So that was the thing too, was that a lot of what I found in like newspapers or were all 
discredited as being just okay. folklore sort of stuff. So there, the people who believe this story are, you know, they're. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna phrase it like that. So the it is. I think it is just folk. Like it is just folklore and like. People you couldn't are, find any real basis for it. No, there was okay. no. There's no doctor. There are no children born with this condition. Okay, still, it's a cool story. It is, and that's what is. we're here for. Exactly. Because exactly. the point of the matter is, I'm sure that you found enough people out there that. Oh, so many stories. Do believe it? Yeah, so many stories. Um. So as with all of our stories, if you have any more evidence or, or information, if you have any sightings, yeah, or if you have any experience with any of the things we talk about, we actually do want to hear it mm-hmm. because. There's a big difference when you read something online and you don't know who it's come from and you don't know where it's come from than if you actually hear firsthand from Exactly. Someone. Like yeah. if a friend of mine came to me and said, I saw one of these. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, I'd be a bit skeptical, but I'd be more inclined to believe yes. them. Absolutely. So it's absolutely encouraged that if mm-hmm. you have, in this case, ever experienced a melon head or if you know of anything in fear from any of these areas that have these fables and you can know anything about it. Let beyond, we want to know. Send us an email. Yeah, that's the whole point. For sure. We don't have an email address yet, but send, we'll come up one. Send an email to somewhere. <laughs> yeah, just imagine sending an email <laughs> and it will get to us. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to talk about a story that I grew up hearing. Mm-hmm. So unlike yours, this was something that when we decided to do something close to home, mm-hmm. I one of the immediate ones I came up with was this. That's really cool. I'm not a ghost believer, mm-hmm. but I grew up in Surrey, which is just outside of London. And it's an area that has been inhabited for a very long time. One of the things that I've realized on our other podcast, History Through a House, is that ghost stories really only came into being later. Yeah. They're a newer phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They're not something that you ever hear about being talked about in prehistory or even so far that I found Roman times. Yeah. And Surrey has been inhabited because of its proximity to London very long for a very long time. So there are thousands of ghost stories. One of the things I want to get into at some point is maybe the smugglers that were there, because there's a I grew up hearing a whole lot about the smugglers. That's cool. Of Surrey, so but not like anything supernatural. No, like legitimate stuff. Well, okay, because although I don't believe in ghosts, mm-hmm. there were a few times growing up in Surrey we apparently used to live on an old smuggler's route. Okay. And there were a few times in Surrey where I would hear horses on the road. We were the last house on the road. Mm-hmm. And I would hear horses on the road, running down the road, and I would go to see whether it was one of my horses that had got out, and there were never any horses there. Ooh. And that was always one of those weird things that used to drive me insane, because it would happen... Frequently? Frequently wow. enough. that I would... And it was a quiet place, so maybe they were on a road somewhere nearby, and I could yeah, get a feet, carry or, or something. you know, maybe they didn't get as far as our house at or that point. Maybe they were ghost horses. Or maybe they were ghost horses. But at some point, we'll look into that legend. That's really that's cool. That's not the legend I want to talk about. Yeah. Legend I want to talk about is the legend of the Silent Pool. Okay. Which is, for those that live in England and may have heard of it, the name of a very popular gin. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. It's, uh, which is why the gin and tonics are so appropriate. Mm-hmm. As we both stopped to have a quick refresher. The gin itself is filtered through the chalk of the area that the Silent Pool was in. Haunted gin? I Anyway, I, I have to say we've got someone... Trying to get hold of Silent Pool gin so we could taste it in the middle of quarantine <laughs> lockdown has proved to be almost impossible. So we'll taste whether it tastes haunted the next time yeah, we get our hands yeah. on the bottle. But unlike your one, the Silent Pool, actually having done some investigations into it, will have some very cut and dry answers. Okay. But I'm going to read you a poem associated mm. with it. Hopefully, because it's quite a long, rhymy poem, and I'm sure this oh, might wow. take me a couple of, a couple of times to do it. Okay? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, the Legend of the Silent Pool from 1928. Wicked King... There we go. I'm already. already. <laughs> Wicked King John, so historians say, had heard of the pool by the pool pilgrim... Oh, my God. That is really wordy. Okay. All right. <clears throat> okay. One more time. Once more with One feeling. One more with feeling. Wicked King John, so historians say, had heard the pool by the pilgrim's way and went on his castle in Guildford Town... On a hunting visit, he travelled down. He soon was told of a nut-brown maid who lived near the way in a forest glade. For the strolling players and pilgrims good all spoke of a hovel near Westone Wood, and of sunny-faced Emma, free from care, with eyes so dark and a figure so rare. A rural Venus, the woodman's daughter, who often bathed in the clear cold water, clinging to branches or twining with care, clusters of lilies in her coal-black hair. One day, as she swam there, half in, half out, a horseman appeared with a laughing shout, and the startled maiden with cries of fear made a dash for the bank and her homely gear. But the king was there in blushing red. To the deeper water she quickly fled. Will you foil me thus, said angry King John. I will have you yet, you beautiful swan. Then deep in the pool on his horse he went and snatched at her head as she backward bent. He was feeling sure of her capture now when she loosed her hold on the friendly bow and down in the depths of the pool she sunk while the coward king rode out to the bank. Her young brother, Tethbert, searched the wood, came at this moment to where the king stood. Hast thou seen my sister? Canst you tell me where? And got for an answer, look, child, she is there. With fleeting glance, the boy dived in, clothed as he was in his tunic of skin. And bravely he struggled, but all in vain. His strength failed to lift her to the air again. But clasping each other's like lovers found, together they sunk in fair Shire Brown's pond. Jeez. So there we go. That's wordy. I got through it. You did. You did very well. Thank you. Just to prove that dyslexia <sighs> isn't always a killer. <laughs> so that is the legend of the silent pool. There's actually a longer legend that goes with it. That is the tale of how Emma died. Mm -hmm. But there's a longer legend that goes with it, which is King John of the time. So this is in the 12th and 1300s. Okay, I was going to ask when he was... Um, he, King John of England, was king, was born on December the 24th in 1166. Okay. And he was born, uh, died on October 19th in 1216. B.C. or C.E. B.C.E. Okay. Uh, no, C.E. Okay. Yeah, C.E. He was not a very popular king. Okay. And his reign ended in the signing of the Magna Carta. Okay. Which basically gave power back to the people of England. Mm -hmm. um, he was very unpopular and they revolt the people of England revolted. Mm -hmm. Now the legend goes a little bit deeper with this silent pool legend, which is that the Archbishop of Canterbury was born nearby and he had been in love with a girl as a young man and King John had come in and swept the girl away and kidnapped the girl mm -hmm. and thinking that the other one was dead each thinking that the other one was dead they both committed to the life of the cloth okay so he became the Archbishop of Canterbury and she became a nun okay and then they realized each other was alive but they'd already committed to God so they couldn't get married and all because of King John then King John was the result of this beautiful girl's death in the silent pool mm -hmm. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, realizing that King John was, you know, a horrific human, yeah. decided to make it his life's mission to 
make the country revolt and to remove the Okay, so those two stories are related. Yes. Or seem, or in folklore. So the folklore has this big tie-in. Yeah. That results in the Silent Pool. That's really cool. And the Silent Pool, let me tell you a little bit more about the area. The Silent Pool is a pond that is half man-made and half... Natural. Natural. Mm-hmm. In Albury, Surrey. Okay. It's a chalk pond and it is set just a little bit back off the road. I've been there quite a few times. Mm. It is gorgeous and very still and because of the rock that it filters through, incredibly clear. So you can actually see the bottom of it. Okay. Or you could as a child, from what I've done in my research, unfortunately they've had an influx of some weed and Mm. they're looking for donations to try and get it all cleared out. Okay. It is totally surrounded by trees, Mm -hmm. very, very still. It's actually two ponds. One is totally man-made and the silent pool itself is not. Does one feed the other? Okay. Yeah. So this is the one that's deeper into the wood. Mm-hmm. There's a description here of, of it, because I think it's important to understand why the legends were. It's nestled between the picturesque villages of Sheer and Albury, which both are places of mystery and legend. Set back from Sheer Road, somewhere hidden between a thicket of trees, it has long been a haven for those seeking contemplation and tranquility. A viewing platform is built overlooking the water, and you can hear the, all you can hear is the babbling and trickling sounds of the higher pool draining into the pond below. From the pond, the path continues up a slight incline and through a tunnel of beech and yew trees. Soon the corridor of branches and bushes give way to reveal the clear water of the silent pool. The air seems crisper here somehow, and the late summer sun reaches deep into the pool and illuminates the emerald green plant life and the base of the pool. Hmm. Some people say that the pool is in fact bottomless. I know that was what I was brought That's up really cool. told, <laughs> being told, that the pool was bottomless. Yeah. My So my recollections of the story... Mm-hmm. And this is what I remember being told, is that a girl was swimming in the pool, Mm -hmm. and she, and it is crystal clear, and she was swimming naked, and somebody rode up onto the pool, and she was so ashamed of herself for swimming naked, that she bent under the water. She was so ashamed of herself for swimming naked, that when she heard footsteps approaching, she ducked under the water and swam out. Mm -hmm. And she, the person stopped to let their horse drink from the water. And she so didn't want to have her reputation ruined yeah. for being seen naked that she stayed under the water and drowned to death. Okay. And that was that was the legend I had heard. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I never really looked into it any further than that as a kid. Yeah. We would go there and walk the dogs there, and it it is a gorgeous place. I do understand that since the gen has started, it's become a lot more touristy. <laughs> but going even back to the Victorian and Edwardian times, it was it was a tourist trap. Oh. Okay. And that is because none of this is real. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty clear cut. It is. And this is the really funny thing about it. It's this amazing legend built around two huge historical figures. Mm-hmm. However, it is actually a late 1800s book. Oh. Written by, well, I'm going to read you what, hang on. This is what Guilford, Guilford.com has oh. to say about it. Brilliant. Go back 157 years, and a writer from Albury near Guildford had a book published that took the true story of wicked King John and the Barons and Archbishop Steve Langton, who all forced the king to endorse the Magna Carta, but added a huge dollop of fiction that focused on the local area. Mm-hmm. Born in 1810, Martin Tupper was educated at Christ Church, Oxford, and was called to the bar. So that means became a lawyer. Yeah. But became a writer instead and lived with his family at Albury Park. 
For nearly 50 years, he was a household name in Britain and the US uh, because of his book, Proverbial Philosophy, and a collection of reflections and maxims in a vaguely rhythmical form. One of the sources I wrote put that he was historically an horrific writer and poet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just bad. Just really, really bad. Really should have been a lawyer. Yeah. What I read, by the way, was not his work. Okay. That was a later poem. Yeah. Okay. About his work. Okay. I actually couldn't find his original book. That's not a good sign. No, it's called Stephen Langdon or The Days of King John, The Romance of the Silent Pool, and it was published in 1858. Okay. The book contains the fanciful story of King John causing the death by drowning a pretty young girl in the silent pool. All good stuff, but as the years have passed and the book became mostly forgotten, the story of the drowning incident at the silent pool, however it was remembered and began to be told orally, changed as uh, if it actually okay. happened. The villain had even been changed in some stories to that of King Charles II. Mm. I hadn't heard any of the king. Yeah, it didn't sound like there was any sort of history. No, I didn't know it was it. anything to do with the king. While living in Surrey, Tupper got to know the immediate countryside well, and in all probability it inspired his historical novel, he has admit he has basically admitted that he did this for tourism. Oh, he okay, living in Surrey. Living in Albury, which is the yeah. local town. He found this pool and was like there an easy way to bring people here is to make some make up some stuff. Exactly. Mm. He even moved the place of where the Archbishop of Canterbury was born because everything suggests that he was born in Lincolnshire. Okay. And he moved him to a local town. Like <laughs> Lincolnshire's a different county. Different county. Okay. Yeah. So there was nothing not, not, there's there's no really connection. no historical truth to this <laughs> in any way. Yeah. Tupper died in 1888, and by the turn of the 20th century, more and more visitors were coming to enjoy the Surrey countryside. With the advent of the motor car and the motor bus, not mentioned hordes of cyclists, many made their way to the silent pool. Yeah. And here is a postcard from... That's really cool. Okay. That's a big postcard. Yes. And with the poem below it oh neat so the poem that i read earlier was actually a t again a yeah. tourist yeah and it sounds like it was more popular than his writing ever was yes i guess so was that a poem you'd heard before no i hadn't heard okay. of it at all until this chances are most of the edwardian day trippers would not have known about tupper's book but most of would have heard the true story about a king and a naked girl okay anyone visiting the silent pool and looking down through the clear waters to the chalky bottom may find it easy to believe Topper knew how to tell a good story, and many aspects like the graceful beech trees that dip their branches and nearly touch the water are still evident today. Now we've got more legends associated with her, which is she's haunting it. Okay. Because, you know. Turn it into a ghost story. Turn it into a ghost story. So, But there is no evidence that anyone drowned in that pool. Nope. Not at any point in time, ever, nope. ever. No, it's actually quite shallow. <laughs> so probably kind of hard to... It drops off a bit deeper at the back. Yeah. But... Not bottomless. No, not bottomless. Okay. No evidence that anyone died in it at all. Although I did hear a lot of people say very hopefully that maybe the basis of his story was based on local legend. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to tell. Maybe before he wrote this book, people in the pub talked about the woodcutter's daughter who died in that pool. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the version that I heard is more true than, is the, more story true than the story he told, which is just that she was naked in this pool... A guy rode up, she couldn't swim, so she went into the deeper water at the back yeah. and ended up getting dragged down. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I know from my history degree that drownings were a huge problem. <laughs> um, firstly, people didn't learn to swim. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they were usually bathing in open water, not at home. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, although the, the story has her naked, 
a lot of the time people would be doing stuff on the banks of rivers and ponds and stuff fully dressed. Uh -huh. And at that period, the clothes they were wearing were very easily weighed down if they got heavy. Right. So, I mean, it literally could have been as simple as an old woman was washing her clothes while wearing woolly. Yeah, and just sank. And sank. Mm. But now there's a ghost story. Now there's a ghost story. So apparently um, at midnight, if you go there at midnight, you will see her naked body swimming through the water. Mm. Or hear her crying. Or see orbs <laughs> of light. Or somebody said that the woodcutter's cottage that was nearby is super haunted. I read some first-person accounts of people mm. that had been, who had lived in this cottage. Really? And had had ghost stories, and they thought maybe it was the woodcutter waiting for his daughter to come home spooky so there's a lot of really spooky things associated with it and actually if you go on youtube and look it up you'll see loads of people go in there oh, go out cool. there and video it yeah and trying to find yeah ghosty stuff moving forward a bit in time it was associated also with another fairly mysterious thing this is by the way for those that have no concept of what i'm talking about which is what probably adam is one of those people mm -hmm. it is just a random pond yeah i mean it's pretty yeah but isolated ponds, I feel like, are just, have some air of mystery about yeah, them. Yeah, but it is kind of just a pond. It is just track. a pond. Um, anyway, is Agatha Christie. Is it kind of hard to get to? Yeah. Okay. Let's go for a bit of a walk. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not isolated. No. Now it's a car park. It's got a big car park on a fairly main road. Oh, and you okay. just walk down to it. <laughs> okay. So, Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. She disappeared from a car park right there. Mm -hmm. And disappeared for 10 days. And one of the things that they did was they actually ended up dredging the silent pool to see whether her body was in there. Really? Yeah. Um, she Didn't they find her in a hotel in, yeah, in she, like London like 10 days later? She might have been in Brighton, but she had am <laughs> she claimed she had amnesia. Yeah. Um, I think that the theory falls into two camps. One is she her husband had apparently announced that he wanted a divorce a couple yeah. of days beforehand. Yeah. So there's two theories. One is that she just wanted a break. Reasonable. And as a famous author with a husband and children, running away was basically her only option. Mm -hmm. Or the other one is that she had a genuine mental breakdown. Yeah. And did, in fact, have no idea what she'd yeah. been doing for the last 10 days. Yeah. There's also a really bad movie. I think we've talked about this, like, off off show. Obviously, but, this is the first one, but... Where uh, there's a movie about it where she gets approached by a girl to come solve a mystery and she decides oh, to be, like, one of her characters. We've definitely talked about watching this. Yeah, and I got about halfway through it on a plane, I think, one day and then decided to <laughs> couldn't just... Couldn't be bothered. Couldn't do it. <laughs> but anyway, The Silent Pool is also forever going to be associated now with Agatha Christie's disappearance. Mm. It's a whole area over there called Newlands Corner. Okay. It's a big dog, dog walking area. Mm -hmm. But it's just... Like a park or... Yeah, just... it's like a big park... Okay. I didn't I know just, if there was more than, I didn't know if there was more than, like, more developed than the car park near the pool, or if there was, like... It's like a hill, okay. and on the top of it is a church called St. Martha's, Okay, which is a very old church that I used to go up riding around. Mm. So a lot of my knowledge on this is really kind of colloquial, like, yeah, it's home all... knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe someone told me at one point during World War II, they actually covered the whole of St. Martha's Church in fir branches so it couldn't be used as a landmark for bombers. Oh, interesting. Which I thought, it, nothing to do with what we're talking no, about, but, but cool. a pretty cool little... Um, and it has this park called Newlands Corner on it where a lot of people I know walk their dogs. And then at the bottom of this, the streams off the top of this hill run into the silent pool. So are there more stories associated with that area, like with the park, with the... the... The corner. Yeah, so that whole area, like I said, is really, and this is where I grew up, mm -hmm. is is considered very old and very haunted. Okay. 
there's definitely a couple of pubs that are haunted in the area that I'd like to talk about. Isn't every pub haunted? I, yeah. Our uh, pub is apparently haunted. Yeah. Um, and so, but this one's slightly different just because I guess that the romantic knight legend about it mm-hmm. is, it's like King Arthur. It's, yeah, it is. It's a modern it really fable. It is, yeah. And it, it's just a very, very popular one where we are. Yeah, that's cool. Moving back to the gin. Mm-hmm. So Silent Pool Gin was set up, I think, in 2014. Okay. What's interesting about their gin is that the label is actually a guy and girl, and it's quite a romantic label. Instead of them being siblings. Instead of them being siblings. Uh-huh. In every version I found, the two that drowned were brother and sister. Okay. Um, obviously, it it's did... a quite a dark legend to sell a gin. Yeah, it is. It's just Seek the Silent Pool, which yeah. is a bit... Oof. So it's it's crafted in the area, but the Silent Pool gin actually doesn't really have anything to do with the legend no, of the it, Silent Pool. Just another touristy thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with that. Nope, nothing wrong with as that long as the gin's good. And it does a good job, and the bottle's beautiful. It is, yeah. I quite like the, the art for the label. It's yeah. nice. Uh, handmade with chalk, filtered waters from the eponymous Silent... Eponymous? Yeah, Eponymous. Well, okay, let me try that again. <laughs> Handmade with chalk-filtered waters from the eponymous Silent Pool, deep in the heart of the Surrey Downs. The Silent Pool brand is a targeted global audience of premium gin drinkers. The success of the Silent Pool branding has been in combination with provenance of a craft gin with the branding appeal of a super premium spirit. Working with leading underwater photographer, Zena Holloway, Arthur created a haunting image that promises an escape to the Silent Pool. An aspirational and magical place free from the banalities of everyday life. Good lord. It's a pretty positive spin on a a Pretty dark tale. (laughs) Yeah, for for saying that, like, yep, just drink away your worries with this haunted ghost gin. Yep. So, poor Emma dying... In a a pond. In a pond by the horrible King George. Mm -hmm. John, right? Uh, John, yep, sorry. I was going to tell you what ghost stories people had actually seen mm-hmm. i legitimately can't find anyone actually saying that they've seen it okay it's just everyone says that someone has seen it they always yeah that was the thing i found in mine was like you may have never seen one but you probably have a friend whose sister's brother's dentist has seen a melon head in a field somewhere. so here's the thing with facebook mm-hmm. surely with all the people that know other people yeah we should be able to get to primary sources of these people yeah very quickly so that should be one of the aims, I think, of the podcast, okay. is to try and find first one accounts. person yeah. who has had a first-hand account okay. with any of these things. Okay. Because then... Mild. It's a bit more interesting. Well, not... Yeah. Yeah, no. It works. At least we have somebody... We're coming at it more from the point of view of a skeptic. Yeah. We do it more for the laugh, I think. Yes. But there is a chance that maybe some girl did drown in the silent pool, mm-hmm. and this is a legend that has continued for yeah. a thousand years. Well, I, lo- I also... I love hearing people's... One of one of Ben's friends, Mug Dad, believes in ghosts very heavily. And ben is my husband. Yes. I do not, but I do love hearing stories from people who believe that they have seen ghosts or who believe in ghosts because they have so much passion. People who believe in ghosts have so much passion that ghosts exist. Their stories are always just fantastic. I would say that I'm not somebody that naturally comes from a position of faith. Mm-hmm. Whatever your faith you're talking about. Yeah. I don't have faith that there are ghosts. Right. Really happy to be proved wrong. Exactly. Yeah. I, this is not a question. I just don't have faith. No. I have knowledge. Yeah. And I don't have personal knowledge of ghosts, so mm-hmm. therefore I just don't have faith. Yeah, that's fair. 
I, I think I agree with, with that as well. Okay, so next week I think that we should try and find a big legend that everyone might have heard of. Okay. That we can go into. Okay. And we'll try and go with something that seems very popular because we did something very niche this week. Yeah, cool. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, thanks for listening to Legendary. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.